Hello and welcome back to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and in tax policy. I'm your host, John Gimigliano. We've got a very important topic today, and to tackle that topic, we are joined by special guests. So settle in. This is going to be a good one, folks. Today, we return to the Biden tax plan. Now, if you've been listening over the last many months, you know we've examined all the major aspects of candidate Biden's tax plan. But now, of course, we have President Biden, and he has suggested a few things we hadn't seen from the candidate. Biden's Made in America tax plan released a few weeks ago dropped an entirely new proposal on us, and it's a biggie. Specifically, I'm talking about the SHIELD proposal. Okay, so what is SHIELD? We're going to get to that in detail shortly, but just to dispense of the question of the acronym, look, please don't shoot the messenger here, but we need to get this out of the way. SHIELD stands for Stopping Harmful Inversions and Ending Low-Tax Developments. Okay, got it? Having dispensed with the name, let's talk about what the proposal is intended to do. To do that, we are joined by special guests today, as I said. First, we've got Manal Corwin. Manal is, among other important roles, the principal in charge of KPMG's Washington National Tax. Manal has had two stints at Treasury, including as Deputy Assistant Secretary International in the Office of Tax Policy during the Obama administration. Second, we have Ron Dabrowski, Technical Deputy in KPMG's Washington National Tax and an International Tax Principal. Ron has extensive government experience, including at Treasury, the IRS, and as International Tax Counsel to the Tax Writing Senate Finance Committee. So, Ron, let me start with you. We'll get this shield shortly, but Biden's proposal really has two parts. First, he would repeal the current base erosion and anti-abuse tax, the BEAT, and then replace it with shield. So let's start with the BEAT, first enacted in the TCJA. There's been criticism of the TCJA, honestly, from all sides. Some who argue it cut taxes too much. Some who argue it didn't cut taxes enough. But I'm not sure any TCJA provision has gotten more and more consistent criticism than the beat. So let's just talk about it for a second. You know, at its origin, the beat was designed to be the inbound anti-base erosion counterpart to the outbound anti-base erosion guilty. I'd like to get your take on it. Do you think it did? And how did the beat miss the mark in that goal? Thanks, John. Yeah, I starting with inbound, right? There was nothing ever particularly inbound about it. Maybe that was the marketing side of it. But the reality is the provision applied to outbound payments to related parties, and it didn't have a CFC exception. So any U.S. company paying its foreign subsidiaries, if it was a deductible payment, you're in the suit. So right from the get-go, there's nothing magical about inbound. They were also in the suit, but you know, it definitely applied to U.S. multinationals. The rules also didn't work off of a low-tax payment rule, for example, which we'll get into with the shield. But it was just, is there an outbound payment? And so all outbound payments to related parties are treated equally and are sort of bad. And if you have too much of them, you're caught by the beat. When you get to this scope, if you're looking at the universe of deductible payments, it's like interest and royalties and services. The services side, I think, caught a lot of people by surprise. Even in manufacturing groups, you're often hiring people to do services. Much of the economy sort of now works around service provisions. And very commonly, the beat was capturing just common structures that deemed to be outbound related party payment. You have too much of them and the beat's attacking you. So that's the crime, right? The crime doesn't really make sense. Then the punishment, when you looked at it, it was, okay, we're going to kind of claw back deductible payments. All right, well, maybe that makes sense given the crime. But then there was the whole rules around clawing back credits. 
And so you had domestic credits for general business, low-income housing tax credit, things that were meant to actually incentivize domestic behavior. And now we're going to take those away because you have too many outbound payments. Foreign tax credits are certainly in that mix as well. And it just creates a disproportionate hit really on U.S. multinationals. So it was an interesting, and certainly I think how it's played out, the impact has been probably more disproportionate toward U.S. multinationals than the marketing was certainly back at the beginning of the TCJA. Yeah. So if the original intent of the beat was to balance out the guilty, right, the guilty being designed to prevent outbound base erosion, the beat really actually burdened outbound with another layer of tax potentially. And I guess that's really much of the domestic criticism that we've heard about the beat really from its inception. So Manal, let me turn then to you. Okay, so that was sort of what was wrong with the beat from a U.S. point of view. The beat seems to also have caused controversy outside the U.S. Explain to us why that dynamic outside the U.S. as well. Yeah, thanks, John. I think really two reasons. First, because the beat operated to disallow deductions on outbound payments, so payments to related non-U.S. parties that would have otherwise been allowed if the related party payment were to a U.S. taxpayer, it was deemed by both our treaty partners and our trading partners as being discriminatory and thus inconsistent both with our treaty obligations as well as trade obligations and commitments. It's that perspective that led a number of countries and the EU to express their intent to pursue trade action against the beat regime and bring tariffs against U.S. business as a result of what was believed to be a discriminatory measure. The second issue with the B was that it didn't fit and it showed up in the context of the discussions at the OECD under Pillar 2, which is this pursuit of the global minimum tax. The B was perceived as not quite fitting within the construct of Pillar 2 as an appropriate anti-base erosion regime that would serve the purposes of the parallel under tax payment rule structure. So if you think about Pillar 2, Pillar 2 is about establishing a global minimum tax that's enforced in two ways. One, and principally through an income inclusion regime that is imposed by the residence country, similar to guilty, that would make sure that income that is earned in a related party entity offshore is subject to the minimum. And then the backstop to that, the second regime, if a country did not have an acceptable income inclusion regime, other countries, the source countries, could be the backstop to making sure the income was subject to a minimum by having an undertax payment rule. But because the beat was indifferent to the amount of tax being borne by the income outside the U.S., it was not viewed as adequate. And for the reasons of it being discriminatory, the view was that, and actually also because the beat applied, even if a full inclusion regime were in effect, the OECD and the countries around the table, their perspective was the U.S. had to turn off the beat where another country had an acceptable full inclusion regime. So you've both made a pretty compelling case, you know, unloved inside the U.S., unloved outside the U.S., the dynamic of the beat. And now, of course, four years later, we're talking about restructuring our international tax system anyway. So even though candidate Biden didn't really mention the beat and we had many questions as, is there something else coming out there that would either replace the beat or supplement the beat? I think we now know that obviously from the administration's release that they do want to get rid of the beat. So Ron, back to you then. So we're going to repeat the beat. And we are going to replace it with this thing called shield. So first question, and then I've got to follow up for you, but first question, just tell us what is the shield and how would this thing work? Yeah. So we have like 20 words to try to 
parse this out. So let me start with the words. So, right, Shield denies multinational corporations U.S. tax deductions by reference to payments made to related parties that are subject to a low effective rate of tax. Like, that's the quote. That's the universe that we understand at this point. So we'll start with the good news, and this is for U.S. multinationals. Like, it seems clear, and this is all in keeping with the kind of pillar to embrace that Biden is undertaking here that this will not apply to outbound payments to U.S. multinationals. The bad news there is that because they're subject to an enhanced guilty regime under the Biden proposals, but at least the CFC side, the U.S. CFC side has been taken care of. So we're focusing here just on foreign parented inbound structures. Now we just get into a whole host of design questions, right? Like when you look at that sentence I read out, you know, it's by reference to payments made to related parties. And, you know, as a good U.S. tax practitioner, you're like, hey, we have rules that apply to payments to related offshore parties. We have like Section 267, which is a matching rule, waits for accruals to be included in income offshore and and subject to the U.S. guilty or subpart F regime. We have 267A rules that apply to impart outbound hybrid payments. So, hey, we understand it. So, right, the shield in a payments universe is outbound payments to low tax companies. As soon as you get there and it's looking at a foreign parented structure, you start looking at the design issues, right? Like how exactly are we going to determine that the payment presumably is low tax or are we testing the jurisdiction to see whether it is low taxed? What does low taxed mean the administration has come out with? We're going to start with the guilty rate, but if there's a global consensus around the minimum tax rate, we will shift to that. So we're starting that low tax means 21%. That's going to capture an awful lot. Then the real big question is, how much is denied here? We're going to deny deductions for payments. Are we talking the corporate income tax rate effect? So 28% on the dollar, just going to deny the deduction entirely. Are we going to deny the deduction just up to the minimum tax rate, like 21%? You'd think the latter would at least be fairer. But even there, if there's any tax imposed offshore, you're taxing the payment in the aggregate above the minimum tax. And it's useful to contrast it with the pillar two under tax payment rule, which is actually just a top-up tax. It's looking for the difference between the minimum tax and the jurisdictional effective tax rate and just applies a tax in the payor jurisdiction equal to that difference. That would be an awfully big lift. And if you go read through the pillar two blueprint, there's a lot of detail around that. The description from Biden doesn't sound like that, but maybe it is. Last sort of big design issue is COG's going to get caught. The Biden white paper tax plan criticized the beat because it didn't reach COG's, but then the simple description I read didn't really get you there. A lot of problems with expanding the scope. Beat did not generally touch COG's. It would be a big deal if the shield did, but it's just unclear right now. So the follow-up question then to that, that I had for both Manal and Ron, go ahead, feel free to weigh in on this, is as we outlined the original intent of BEAT, which was designed, you know, arguably in its earliest stages to provide some sort of equilibrium between inbounds and outbounds, do you think SHIELD does a better job at that relative to what BEAT did, or do you think it has its own issues in delivering some kind of equilibrium? I'll dive in first. I think if you look at the administration's proposals around guilty in particular and the rate hikes, they're going to be charges of anti-competitiveness. Like U.S. companies are going to be unfairly burdened by this. I think part of their rejoinder is, well, at least for the U.S. market, we're getting the foreign multinationals as well. We're increasing basically their U.S. effective tax rate. That 
sort of mutually assured taxation. I'm not quite sure what the economists would say about the competitiveness concerns, but I think that's the theory of it. It certainly is more balanced, but it's just balancing against a different goal, if you would. Yeah, I agree with that, Ron. I think that it is a different mechanism to create some equilibrium. But, you know, obviously that equilibrium can shift if we start seeing a divergence between the guilty rate that U.S. multinationals bear versus the shield rate which would be applied to the activities of non-U.S. companies. So I think as we see the design unfold and as we see whether the U.S. is successful in getting other countries to align both their inclusion regimes, their guilty-like regimes, and their under their anti-base erosion regimes closer to what the U.S. has, that will really sort of tell us to what extent equilibrium from a competitiveness perspective can, is, is, is achieved. Right. And we'll get to that, the importance of the correlation to the U.S. system and the U.S. guilty rate, et cetera. One other question for the two of you. I know this is kind of off the cuff, but imagine, you know, the good people in the Treasury's Office of Tax Policy are listening to us. What are the things you would most be hoping to see in the Green Book when we get it in a month that would further deepen our understanding of how S.H.I.E.L.D. works? Ron, you mentioned this question on COGS. It would be wonderful if they would give us that detail. What else would you think would be helpful to get in the Green Book? I think this question about it being a cliff versus a top-up is going to be an important one. And just taking it from the perspective of the administration's releases to date have made the shield as an important component to this broader goal of wanting to end the race to the bottom around the world. And they're doing that in two ways. One, by very vocally advocating for a global min tax, so sort of guilty-like regimes across the board, but also then to create an incentive is to implement the shield shield regime as a way to encourage other countries maybe to adopt this min tax because if they're not going to do it, the U.S. is going to sort of unleash this backstop. What unleashing this backstop means and when is it unleashed and how is it unleashed relative to different types of regimes that might be adopted is going to be an important piece of information. You know, how do they expect that coordination to unfold? They gave us some insight into some of that coordination in the materials that they've released so far by suggesting that the rate for the shield would be whatever the guilty rate is at the moment being proposed at 21% until there's global agreement as to a global min tax and then the shield rate would be set by reference to that global agreement. But there's a lot of questions as to what about the other architectural components, the different mechanics of the shield relative to the mechanics of what's being talked about at the OECD. As Ron mentioned, a top-up tax right now being talked about at the OECD blueprint. It's a cliff in the U.S. How do you measure the amount of tax being borne on the other side to test whether the cliff applies? If it is a cliff in the shield, and given that the structure of the guilty-like regimes under the OECD look very, very different, how is there an intention to make those two things interact? So that would be of great interest to me. Jumping off from that, it's sort of like those details in the design, ultimately, it gets to how much of a cudgel this really is, like how much they're going to try to put a very onerous regime in place to try to really get consensus around a global minimum tax, or at least raise the thinking on the highest possible rate that the inclusive framework would agree to under a global minimum tax. And at one extreme, this could be a very big cudgel, like a very aggressive stand by the U.S. to try to almost force the rest of the world to go along. The other side of the coin there is the effective dates. So is this like a 2022 regime, like going to happen, you know, probably on a faster timeline than what the Pillar 2 proposals would have? Is it delayed a little bit? Do we keep or something for a couple years. Effective date choices, I think it it's all goes into the messaging, kind of. 
I thought it was interesting you referred to it as a cudgel run because, of course, it's called Shield. But somebody, I think, have viewed it, and I think maybe rightfully so, in its own way as a weapon as well. So to that point, but now let's just talk about the OECD and how this plays into the really complex. You've hit on some of this already, but let's talk about how this works into the OECD negotiations that are ongoing. Yeah, well, from a U.S. perspective, I don't see them waiting necessarily for whatever is going to develop at the OECD to incorporate this into the plan. I think they have a clear plan to move forward with this repeal and replace the beat. I think on the OECD side, you've got a bit of a time pressure to get to a political consensus by July. I think the administration's very vocal support of the process and, frankly, their proposal of this shield to replace the beat because it does fit lines better with the undertax payment rule has been a hugely important part of encouraging those that are sitting around the table that they can get to some political consensus. But it's pretty clear that they're not going to be able to work out all of the details by July. For the reasons I articulated before, I do think it's going to be important to think about how divergent the plumbing of these regimes are going to be across jurisdictions and whether that's the full inclusion regimes like guilty or it's these undertax payment regimes. If you've got varying architecture across jurisdictions, but a lot of the testing, you are testing someone else's effective tax rate, the complexity is going to be extremely high and difficult to administer. So there's probably some incentive to move together in some ways in terms of how this gets structured. So it's going to be a delicate dance, I think, to both get to a quick agreement at the OECD side at the political level and then buy time for the details to be worked out while at the same time have the U.S. move through its processes and go through Congress, obviously a very important player here that we haven't talked about. We're talking about the the administration's proposal. Things may unfold very differently once they start trying to negotiate this on the Hill. But again, I do think one important nod to coordination here is that very forward statement in the Biden administration release that there is an intention to align the shield rate with whatever the global agreed rate is at the OECD. And again, so just a signal that there is a willingness not only to cooperate, but maybe to align approaches. So do you think then that the development and the release of SHIELD increases the likelihood of successful negotiations then at the OECD or too early to tell? What do you think? Absolutely. Increases it largely because it removes the beat from it being an issue. We were talking about guilty grandfather as an issue with guilty in pillar two and the proposals on guilty now to go to country by country are more aligned. So you've removed a couple of the things that were sticking points to getting to agreement and moved it closer to what they've already formulated as a broad structure. Well, we're going to have these two different projects moving roughly in parallel, although as you outlined, the timing may not be exactly the same, but it's really challenging. All right, let's come back to the Biden plan for a second, Ron. The math of the Biden plan is challenging in that the president has talked about in the American Jobs Plan spending $2.7 trillion in 10 years, raising $2.7 trillion from corporate tax increases over 15, which when you normalize those numbers, gets you somewhere to $1.8 to $2 trillion in the first decade in tax increases. They're short without shield. And of course, we don't know exactly what the revenue effect of shield would be from any actual analysis from the Joint Committee of Taxation or even outside sources. What is your guess? Do you have any guess in terms of how much shield would raise? Of course, keeping in mind, we have to net it against beat repeal, right? Yeah, so it is a net amount. We're certainly raising revenue on the beat side, and then you're going to replace it here. 
and a lot of the design details, which we are not privy to, are going to tell you what the score is. And there's some interesting language in the Biden tax plan. And it says in the shield part, all our stuff is designed to raise about $700 billion over the 10-year window. Then in the guilty reform discussion, they say that those changes would raise about $500 billion in the 10-year window. If you do the math, that would leave about $200 billion, which would be filled in large part by the net effects of switching to shield, which Again, depending on the design parameters, it would seemingly make sense. I mean, this could be a pretty big imposition on inbound structures. So it does seem to be a significant component. And there are also dynamic effects within there, but it is a significant component of the Biden plan. Interesting. So and that's roughly about the same amount of money that FIDI repeal raises. So you couple it with FIDI repeal, with the guilty change you talked about, with the corporate rate increase. You're starting to inch up, if it is really $200 billion from S.H.I.E.L.D., inch up on the revenue bogey that the administration is trying to get to. So, and who knows? The other thing we're not really privy to is all the interactive effects that are all certainly going to be in here as well as the economists of Joint Committee of Taxation, I'm sure, are thinking about very hard right now. All right, Manal, this is my last question then. So you talked a little bit about this. You know, this is a really complex question of sequencing between enacting the S.H.I.E.L.D. proposal, enacting the overall Biden plan that Congress has a goal this summer, who knows, may slip into the fall, while at the same time trying to do the Pillar 2 negotiations. Can you just come back to it? Because you did touch on this a little bit. Come back to the relationship between our guilty rate and how that interacts with what we're doing, what the proposal is on S.H.I.E.L.D. I think that's a really interesting point. Make sure everybody understands. Yeah, so a couple of things. One is, I think that the proposed guilty rate that the administration has put out there right now, 21%, everybody's fixated on 21%, and they're aligning the shield with 21% as well for now, and have also indicated that they are going to, in taking into consideration the competitiveness of U.S. companies and being on board with respect to a policy of trying to prevent the race to the bottom, they're going to advocate for a similarly high min tax rate at the OECD. But a couple of things there. Number one is this 21% is actually set by reference to the headline rate, right? Guilty structurally is derived from, by deduction, from the headline rate. And the administration has said that while 21% is where they're going, the underlying policy driver is they want the guilty rate to be 75% of the U.S. headline rate. So if the the U.S. headline rate goes down, you would think guilty is going to go down as well. And let's say it goes to 25%, maybe guilty lands at 18.2%. Now your shield is at the same 18.2%. So from the perspective of what they'll agree to globally, the U.S. has an interest to make sure that the delta between whatever the U.S. guilty rate is and the global min tax is, that that delta is as small as possible. They will certainly try to push for that. I think it's very unlikely that they're going to get the countries around the table to agree to something as high as 21, certainly, or even 18. We have consistently heard talk of 12.5% as being what's comfortable to get to agreement. So again, if the goal is to reduce the delta and 12.5% is where you're going to go, there's serious considerations going to have to be given to what that differential is. But again, they've also indicated a willingness to go on their own and keep the guilty rate high, but be willing to reduce the shield rate to whatever is agreed. I think we're going to have some policy questions that occur and arise here in the U.S. if, in fact, that's where things land. So if, it, for example, the global min tax is at 12.5% and we agree that the shield is at 12.5%, but we keep our guilty rate high, 
there's going to be some that may question that, whether that's appropriate. So I think that all of those things, it's a little bit of a which goes first in a Rubik's Cube, I think are going to play into where things ultimately land. Yeah, I think that's exactly the challenge that they have is that you've got, first of all, the sequencing, who goes first, who goes second, you know, then there's this question, the delta between whatever agreement they get on pillar two relative to the guilty rate. And it was one thing to say, you know what, we're going to do 21%. Whatever happens to pillar two, that's unrelated to what we're doing. But now with the shield proposal, we can no longer make the argument that it's unrelated, right? Because we've just related them. So to a certain extent, the fate of guilty and the guilty rate now is to a certain extent tied to, at least politically, I would think, the, what happens on that pillar two rate. And I think you're absolutely right, Manal. Trying to close that gap will be something that I think both the administration and Congress is going to be very, very focused on, which will be interesting to watch how it plays out this year. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you, Ron and Manal, for an excellent discussion. I hope you'll both come back as things evolve over the coming weeks and months. In parting, I promise I'll keep this short. One observation, back to the topic of acronyms. I know this is a small point in the grand scheme of things, but I'm not sure the world needed another tax acronym. And with SHIELD, honestly, like its acronym ancestors, BEAT, GUILTY, and FITTY, it's not really all that descriptive of what it actually is. I may be in the minority here, but I'm casting my vote now, and I encourage you all to join me to just going back to calling things by their code sections. Acronyms might sound cooler, but let's be honest, nobody's ever going to think we're cool because we can drop fitty at a cocktail party. Yes, code sections may be bewildering, but they are a language all our own. As a tax community, let's just embrace them, be proud to speak our own language that we have to translate for the uninitiated, because hey, that's cool in its own right. With that, thanks again. For tuning in to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, please don't forget to submit your questions, your comments, and suggestions to our inbox. Take care, and I hope to see you soon. Mm-hmm.